Welcome back, team, to another episode where, on this podcast, we help you eat like a legend and do so by getting resources from around the world to truly understand your human potential. And this episode with Chris honestly just underlines everything that stands for because Chris is the founder of Aerobic Capacity, aerobiccapacity.com, and is widely considered to be one of the best endurance coaches on the planet. He's built programs galore. He's someone who truly understands working with athletes, particularly at the endurance level. And I'm really excited to have him on today to go through a number of key principles when it comes to training modality, understanding rest, how to really you know go through it. Um, like some of the things I'm really excited for is how all these principles we talk about, although are specific to the athletic world, can be applied to us everyday legends as well. So, for example, talking about how we have to respect rest, especially with reference to time. So I think, you know, we're all guilty of this, but personally, like, I used to not respect rest enough where, you know, five hours of sleep was enough, or like I'd train seven days a week and there would be no recovery time. So, you know, that's definitely the extreme scale, but I think you can learn from this episode all about the importance of respecting rest with reference to time. We also go into the topics of muscle recruitment and how the brain tries to be as efficient as possible. So your body will naturally try to adapt and you know be as efficient as possible because obviously it's the brain's loaded with volume throughout the day to do many things for you, not just train. You know, it's got a lot of things that it has to help coordinate messaging to. So being efficient as possible is so important. You think about it. The more efficient you can be throughout the day, the more energy you can you reserve for throughout the day to be as uh, you know as accurate as possible in doing your work. So the brain, which is a big part of that, stands the same principles as well. So we definitely talk about that as well. We also go into how we should be manipulating recovery and not doing so just in terms of intensity. So what I mean by that is how we can actually manipulate the recovery to still drive an adaptation for performance. We typically look at adapting or manipulating the training intensity and uh, you know we keep rest the same. So what if we were to adjust the recovery and manipulate the recovery to do similar feet whilst keeping the training intensity the same? So you swap those modalities over. So we go into that as well. And one of the coolest things you know we do talk about is to not cover up mistakes with volume. I think we can all be guilty of this where we fail at something. And so our natural reaction, our impulse reaction would be just to practice, 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 practice. When doing so, you don't give enough adequate rest for your body to relax and rest, even just recharge and assess. So we go into that as well. And one of the coolest takeaways, this is a really cool one, is how a lot of the time we look at an impossible task and we just go into it and we think it's honestly just unachievable. And the way that Chris likes to program is he likes to program things that seem impossible, but to him, he knows are possible. So when his athletes achieve them, it does nothing but extreme exponential confidence boosting. So when you think about that for a second, it's like as a coach or a manager or a team leader, putting a task at hand that could be somewhat impossible to the person you know participating, but to you, you know it's possible and knowing what it would do to their confidence if they succeed. So we go into all those facets as well. It's a really exciting podcast team, particularly after you know being a part of this amazing journey with Robbie Ballinger on his feet a few weeks ago. You know, the endurance, the endurance side of the sport is really exciting to me, um, but you don't have to be an endurance athlete to get benefit from this episode. So if you do like this, leave a review on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to share it with someone you think is going to be definitely 
feeling the benefit of it. You got a friend who likes to run or like, you know, maybe some principles in there that you guys talk about, please uh, feel free to give them a share with it as well. And team, just a couple updates on me personally. Uh, really excited that the chorizo and bolognese are really growing, particularly in the areas of uh, America with football teams. We've got a couple of NFL teams who are now taking on the product. So if you want to be eating like, you know, an athlete like they are in the NFL or the NBA, because we've got some NBA teams taking on as well, you can head to charliestreet.com because now we ship nationwide. You can pick up your chorizo, your bolognese, along with an ebook that I send you, uh, and you can start cooking with it. If you want to eat more plants, it's for you. If you are plant-based and you want something that's high in protein and taste also made from real plants, you can do so as well. As a reminder, this is my product that I made with my team. So it's not like I'm sponsoring something else. This is actually my product. Super excited by it. So head to charliestreet.com, head to the product page, order your chorizo and bolognese, ships to anywhere in the US. If you are from Australia, the UK, I know we have some friends from Canada, even part of Scandinavia, I'm sure we will get there at some point uh, by helping us <laughs> succeed and getting people to eat more plants in America. We'll definitely, definitely get there. Also for my legends who are looking to look after themselves, not even just in the endurance world, but just in the world in general, if you're looking for something to support yourself every single day, like me, first thing, cold water, AG1, one scoop, athletic greens, thank you so much for providing me with 75 vitamins and minerals that are essential for my daily needs. I also eat plenty of vegetables. That's why I get a really good gut health score whenever I do those gut tests. But I will say that this is the thing that really supports me. I took it every single day for six years. I've taken it sometimes twice a day. And I continue to get people like, what supplement should I take? Should I take a prebiotic? Should I take a probiotic? Should I take my vitamins and minerals? No, just take one scoop of AG1. If you're heading to a cabinet and your cabinet's got eight different you know, pill containers, plus you got your vitamin C pills, just honestly, throw it all out and get one scoop of AG1 every single day. It'll be a game changer. And you can do so by heading to athleticgreens.com forward slash epic. And people say, well, how much is the cost? I'm like, well, you think about how much the cost of all those prebiotics and the multivitamins you take are every single month. And if you take AG1, number one, it's cheaper than a cost of, uh, cheaper than a cost of a cup of coffee, but also it's cheaper than putting those things into your mouth every single day. Plus you save a bit of time. Think about undoing the jars, putting them back on, putting them back in the cupboard. Just one scoop, guys. Athleticgreens.com forward slash epic. You can pick up your five free travel packs and your free year supply of vitamin D3. All right, my man, Chris Hinshaw, I'm excited to get you on the show today. Thanks for being part of it, and welcome to the Epic Tale Podcast, dude. Chris Hinshaw, the founder of Aerobic Capacity, my man, welcome to the Epic Table Podcast. Oh my gosh, it's a huge privilege to be here. Huge. I'm, I'm, I'm fired up about the direction of where this conversation goes. Um, Mate, it's really like, so way. Kind of nervous. So way. <laughs> nah. nah you, I've heard you speak many times. You're great, man. You're really good. And you're someone that, um, you know, if I took the microphone away and we weren't over the unfortunate situation of Zoom and we were in person having a coffee or uh, be it a, oh, yeah. a lunch, I feel like you and I needed a whole day just to go through this awesome performance space world and what we both love and obviously it's now your career and what you're building so um we feel privileged to be here i know the community are really excited and i first came across you reading actually a couple articles in i think it was actually in runner's world or something along the lines of 
one of those newspapers talking about the understanding of training zones and you were mentioned. I was like, oh, this guy's pretty cool. And I kept digging in and mate, heard you on podcasts like Whoop. Um, and I really, I really like how you separate yourself in the world of bio-individuality when it comes to outlining training pr- plans. Um, you and I just talked a little bit offline about it. And so I'm really excited. The, the conversation today, the team are really pumped to hear more about how we can look inside ourselves and really identify the right things for us, particularly we've got a lot of marathon runners in, in, in the community. But before we get there, mate, you yourself, you're a bit of an Ironman competitor. It sounded like when you did do it, it was a little bit less, um, how do I put it? You kind of just kind of shot from the hip when you were first doing all these things, particularly when you're training for your first Ironman, correct? You, you, was it like your, your training modality was a marathon? Is that right? Well, I mean, you got to remember back when I did Kona, but it wasn't even called Kona because there was only you know, <laughs> you know, one king of it all, and it was just called Ironman. Mm. Uh, this was in the '80s, and and in the '80s, triathletes were big. There was this belief that you had to be a 200 pound guy to manage that kind of of volume, it, it, and and there was this perception of of size gave you capacity. And what we've obviously learned since then is the opposite is true. And that's why we see marathon runners weighing 115 pounds. And so for me, I was an oddity. You know, I, I was a small guy when I got in. I was 17 years old. And um, I, I remember one of the first races that I did. It was, I did Kona, I think was the second race I did, uh, 18 years old, 17, 18 years old. And then I went and did a an Olympic distance race. And I came from a swimming background. I'm a decent swimmer. Like I was usually top two or three out of the water in Kona. And so on this particular triathlon uh, near San Francisco, it was a beach start and there was probably six, seven, 800 people. <laughs> I was on the front line. So imagine there's six, 700 people behind and basically, it's a storm into the water. So basically, you're going to race into the water, attack it. And there was uh, a guy that was behind me. And I hear him say to me, he says, hey, little kid, get out of my way or I'm going to run you down. <laughs> and I was so insecure because I was tiny and I wasn't good in sport, like, you know, in high school. And I wasn't one of the popular ones, very insecure. And, and I really felt like, if I, if I did well in this sport, if I did well, especially in, in the Ironman, that that was a successful moment for me and, and no one would ever be able to take it away. And so that was my motivation, but I, I could easily be intimidated, easily. And so this guy tells me he's going to knock me down. And I'll never forget, standing next to me was a guy by the name of Scott Molina, who was arguably the best in the world, standing next to me. And he turns and he looks at me and turns and looks to the guy behind me and says, hey, that's that Hinshaw kid. I think he could hold his own. You worry about yourself. The world champion, the best in the world just stuck up for me. And it was such a, a, a pivotal moment for me because no one's ever stood up for me, ever. And I'll never forget it. It's like that gave me, that was a huge catalyst to be, to, 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 to make me continue, to to not quit um, because of my insecurities. That's huge, man. I can only imagine someone you probably idolize, the fact that you're like, whoa, he actually knows my name and who I am as well as his own credibility, right? Right. 
Right. But for me, I mean, I, I think I won the swim in, in Kona, you know, you know, a couple months before that. But the fact that he knew, and, and mm. it wasn't about that. It was that he stuck up for me. Yeah. And and if 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 you've never had that done before, especially as a as a teenager who is really insecure, it was a big moment. And and I think about that now being a coach, you know, when people put their trust in 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 my hands, that I'll I'll never mock them, I'll never be condescending, I'll never be, you know, derogatory at at, at all. Um, that's just not my style. Mate, it's a huge one. Like I, I think you learn a lot. <sighs> Being a coach in general, you learn a lot about yourself as you are coaching and your your own behavioral type, right? And it's it's really yeah. cool that you can call upon those moments and go, I never, I never want to be that. I never want to be that. And obviously, moments like those definitely set you up for uh, establishing your grounds of what you say no to, and that includes your behavioral type, which is which is epic. And so, Kona, how did you go? That do you remember how you did that that race day? I struggled in the run. Um, I thought the swim was silly. I couldn't, I, I mean, it sounds bad. <laughs> so it's a 2.4 mile swim and sure. in the ocean. Um, afterwards I thought, why are they even having the swim? It's a total waste of time. It's like a warm up. I mean, f- you know, 50 minutes in the water. It was like, why even do that? Let's just do biking and running. <laughs> um, but the run gave me a lot of challenge. I never ran before. Um, I didn't know anything about running uh, at that time. Uh, matter of fact, uh, I knew when I entered the first Ironman, I, I knew that it was 26.2 miles. And so I figure the best way to train for a marathon is to run one. So I entered um, the Oakland Marathon and and uh, <laughs> that was a nightmare. So I'm at the starting line of this race and, <laughs> and um, I didn't know anything about it, but I went up to a guy and my size, but he was probably 20 years older than me. And I asked him, I said, so do you have a target today? And he says, oh yeah, I'm going to go three hours. And I'm like, oh, that's a nice round number. I like that. Like, oh, that's, I don't even know what three hours even meant. Right. And I said, well, what's that a mile pace? And he's all 650. I'm like, God, I remember thinking, I wish it was seven. I don't even know what seven was, you know, <laughs> I made it around 13 and then the wheels came off, which is shocking with, you know, that you can make that kind of a pace by just swimming in the water. But what I later learned through doing a bunch of, of tests was that I, I have some pretty good genetics. Uh, you know, my VO2 was extremely, I mean, it was extraordinary. Um, my lung capacity, my, my muscle fiber makeup between slow twitch and fast twitch, I genetically was, was born. Um, with some significant competitive advantages. It just basically gave me an ability to go fast for long amounts of time. So just uh, can you can you outline your VO2 and then put that in perspective of maybe um, where that sits on the scale and maybe where you may see like a, uh, a supreme endurance athlete, what theirs would be as well? Yeah, so just for, I mean, so VO2 is, it, it's essentially the amount of oxygen that you could bring in to your lungs and, and get consumed by the muscles that are moving. Um, and so if you're getting a VO2 max test in the movement of running, it's testing your running muscles. It doesn't tell you anything about swimming, right? And that falls into this theory of specificity. Um, my VO2 right now, I'm 58 years old and it's 61.3. 
for someone of my age, um, superior, like the far end of the chart mm. is 43. So what it's, that's 43 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram of body weight per minute, um, 75 kilograms right now. So 165 pounds. So back when, back in my day, I was in the mid eighties, which is extraordinarily high. Um, and, and that's where I had a genetic advantage. Um, you know, it's not that I didn't work hard. Of course I worked hard. Uh, but I had an advantage over the majority of the population. I mean, that's what champions have. You watch any of those cross country skiers, you know, Norway, they have a genetic advantage. It's not that they're working any harder than you are. Yeah. Um, first and foremost, congratulations on your very extremely amazing VO2 max. You use <laughs> oxygen absolutely efficiently. And uh, this is, this is again, like where um, we look at someone who's performing and you're right, like that capacity of VO2 max, particularly in those endurance events is super crucial. And then you have the technique which they're doing, which you can teach and, and the musculature as well. Like the, the muscles obviously play a part um, mm-hmm. amazingly well. So when you combine all those three things together and you start with a base that is more of a, an attribute as opposed to a skill um, that you can teach right. – um, that's obviously where the coaching comes in as such and the education, but that's phenomenal. That's absolutely phenomenal. I'm curious as to you look back on that now and knowing that you had an extremely high VO2 max, would you have, would you have been interested in doing the likes of cross country skiing or even, um, cycling, um, to, to test it? I mean, how did you do on the bike when you're doing your, your Ironman? My, my, the worst event for me was the run. I mean, I eventually got pretty good. I was able to run, you know, do an Ironman and finish under three hours for a marathon. Mm. But the swim was always easy. I was always, you know, 48 to 49 minutes for the 2.4 miles. The bike ride wasn't that difficult either. I was a decent cyclist. Um, Kona's hilly. A lot of people think that just going across the lava fields, it's flat. It's not true. Mm. It's hilly. Um, (laughs) And because I have such a high strength to weight ratio, I'm a very good hill climber. I was, mm. I was, that was a, a really a strength for me. The problem was, is that if you found events that had a, um, like a hilly bike ride, then more than likely the run would be hilly. And the problem was, is I didn't have power output to run fast uphill. Um, and I couldn't figure that out. Um, there wasn't access to the information that there is today. And, and I never understood why. I just get destroyed in hilly courses. Um, and, and, and that's one of the things that I do look back on. I know I could have been better with the information that I have today. I mean, without question, you know, here I was swinging a pendulum over my food. And if it turned a certain direction, it was better for me. Yet I never went into the gym and did, you know, heavy lifting. Um, you know, low repetition and work those fast twitch fibers. You know, I had a small percentage of fast twitch fibers, but they were passive. Yeah. And this is, this is a, this is a very interesting topic here in the sense that most people train for the likes of marathons and even Ironmans as such. And they do it in a way where they, I'm just, I'm just going to train endurance. I'm just going to train endurance. And And they don't even go to the gym. And that's still even to this day, like we, we see it all the time. And so yeah. what you're suggesting, yeah, you know it too well. It's part of your profession. So 
what you're now suggesting, which is so true, like we should be going to the gym. Yeah. I mean, I get, I get so frustrated by what I see being provided to, let's say like, like for example, you're a marathon runner and uh, you were interested in running your first marathon. So you reach out to runner's world and you get one of their free training plans. And basically these plans are, are they're so vanilla and all they're doing is they're telling you to run a certain volume every day. There's no, there's no targeted stimulus other than volume, volume, and there's no intensity dictated. There's this, uh, that's all that we had back then. It was strictly volume, and uh, we never did a, a lot of interval types of work. I mean, I did it in the pool, uh, but never on the bike. You just rode, and we would ride three to 400 miles every week, and I did that for eight years. And that's just like a thing where <laughs> you just, again, premedicated the fact, oh, this is what we're meant to do. And now we have this, this information. So, And I think this is where we'll, we'll definitely transition to your what happened to you as an athlete versus what got you into coaching and understand this, you know, true aerobic capacity mindset and, and skill set. So what, what was it that transitioned you? Is it you being an athlete going, okay, I'm at a point now where I can make a decision or is it those who, who don't think they can do it anymore want to then help others? Which part was it? So I'm a, I'm a math guy, a numbers guy. And, um, <laughs> So when I, when I, I graduated and, and I did triathlons all while I was in college and traveling and the way I made money was I structured my deals, uh, around TV time. Um, and, and if I was able to validate that I was on TV, whether it was local, national, international, I would get, I would get paid for each of those seconds on the camera. And that's where my swimming came in. You have to film the guy that gets out of the water first. And so uh, I, I, I made my run and eventually though, just the wear and tear caught up and it was time to leave. I did a lot of coaching during that time. As a matter of fact, one of my sponsors was Apple computer and my relationship with Apple that they wanted was me to teach health and fitness to their employees. And so every month I'd have to go into their facility in Cupertino, California and give a health and fitness lecture. And it helped me get pretty good in front of a group. Um, it was good for me. Uh, I, I loved it, but there was no money in it. And so I went and entered into the real world and got into sales, worked in Silicon Valley for 25 years. Um, and when I was in 2008, I was in a business meeting with some of the head originals of CrossFit, uh, Annie Sakamoto being one of them, who was one of the original CrossFit girls and she took up an interest in, in just my background in triathlons. And I took up this interest in what I thought was just the name of the gym, CrossFit. Like I, I didn't know it was like a franchise. Mm. And she said to me, she says, you know, Chris, you've done a lot of volume in your day, but it's the same muscle groups, same movement patterns over and over again. And the reason why you're struggling is because of your neglected muscles and if you strengthened and developed those neglected muscle groups, you could become functional. That word functional resonated with me because at that time I couldn't get my left side to work with my right side. It was here I was, you know, in my forties and I would ride the moving sidewalk down airports. That's what I did it's because it was, it wasn't uncomfortable for me. 
um, to do that. I would never take the stairs. Um, and it wasn't that I had regret at all. There was no regret. I loved my experience and I, and I would do it all over again. And it was just the price I paid. But this thing functional resonated. And eventually I, I worked up the, you know, the interest to go into this, the, the, their gym, which was the original mothership um, of CrossFit in SoCal, California, which was an hour from my house. And um, I'll never forget that day when, when I, I, sh- I showed up because I had never been afraid of anybody. And, and it's not that I, I would lose or win all the time. If I lost, so what? It's fine. I just love to compete. I, and mm. I loved it. I love to test myself. But I wasn't prepared for what I saw that day um, in, in the gym. Um, but that was my day one. And, and I stayed there for three years. And then I got a real opportunity to coach um, the champion of the CrossFit Games in 2008, Jason Kalipa. Um, he came up to me in 2012, the end of 2012. And he said, you know, I get dead last in every endurance event in, at the CrossFit Games. And if I could fix that endurance, I think I could revive my career because he was on the downward slide. And it's true. He was awful in endurance. He's a 225 pound guy, five foot nine. Um, he's a big guy. Um, and he says, you know what? I, I will always do whatever you ask of me. I'll never question you. And that's what got me started. And when he went to the CrossFit games, um, he, instead of getting dead last, he won three out of the four endurance events. He got a third and the fourth one, and he placed second overall. And then that same year, I coached two other people that we all worked out together. One got fifth and the other got ninth. And so that's what that was kind of the catalyst that, that got me back in. But again, I was still the vice president of sales and marketing for a <laughs> you know, multi-million dollar company, you know, half a billion dollar company in Silicon Valley. And I was doing this for free. It was a hobby. Wow. Yeah. Mate, what was, uh, I, I, there's so many awesome stories. The fact that you obviously working with Jason would have been amazing to, to see him excel after working with you would have been incredible. Can you kind of paint a picture for us the very first time you walked into that, you know, your first experience of a CrossFit box? I'm very, very <laughs> are you trying to make here. me, <laughs> you're trying to make me cry today. <laughs> that was, <laughs> If that experience, that was a, not a very great, it wasn't a good time. You know, it's interesting. Nicole Carroll, who's the head of CrossFit training, she is like the, the queen of it all. I was in Boulder, Colorado, and um, one of the athletes that I, I, I worked with um, starting in June of 2013 was Camila Blanc-Bazinet, and she won the CrossFit Games 15 months later. And I, I would go out and visit her and her husband in Boulder, and I would pay for the trip by doing a, a seminar at a local gym. Well, we happened to be with Nicole Carroll um, at the same time. This was like near New Year's. So it turns out that Nicole decides to come to this seminar. I tell this story of my first time going into CrossFit and that day in the gym. And it's not a good experience. I mean, we all have our, our, our uncomfortable moments, but... You have, to, you have to remember that when I walked into the gym that day, the last thing that I did physically was I won Ironman Brazil. So that's who I resonated with. Back in the day, mm-hmm. I was that guy. And so that's what I brought into that parking lot when I parked. Nicole said to me after the course, she says, that was one of the best stories 
because it tells people that you're approachable. And it was, it was really, that was interesting, her, her, her feedback, because there is a, a, a problem with a lot of coaches that have some success with other athletes is there's now fear. What's he going to do to me if I, if I go to him? Is he going to destroy me? Or is he going to really listen and, and help me target a, spe- a, spe- a specific goal around my strengths and weaknesses? And so when I went there that first day, I, I, I wasn't prepared for what I saw. I wasn't. I mean, I had been into a gym before, but I didn't know. I didn't know what, I just knew of things as being heavy. I didn't know what weights things were. I knew that if a metal plate was flat on the ground in the gym, it was hard for me to unsuction it from the floor. I just knew it as heavy. Well, those plates that are steel, uh, you know, metal ones are, let's say, an inch and a half thick, maybe. Well, these ones that women were picking up at this nine o'clock class that I was watching from my car were made out of rubber, but I didn't know that. I thought they were metal. Mm. And they were three times that width. And so I'm like, that's got to weigh 200 pounds on, I think they're lifting maybe three, 400 pounds. I mean, I was like, and I remember <laughs> thinking, I, I know that when I trained, I got really good. And so maybe, maybe if you train, you could get like that kind of strength. So they were doing, <laughs> they were doing power cleans and um, no, they were doing clean and jerks. And dropping that that barbell from the sky and it would bounce. And I'm like, man, this is so dangerous. They're dropping like 400 pounds all over the place. And then they coupled it with pull-ups. And I'd never done a pull-up before. And they weren't doing one. <laughs> they were doing thousands of them. Thousands. And, and the problem was is that my shoulders are so messed up from my swimming that a kipping pull-up, it would snap my arm off. There, and there, there's, there's, there, was, there was no way I could have done any of that at all. And so now I'm, I'm watching, it's funny now it wasn't then. Um, I'm watching the, the class from slouch down in the driver's seat and I could see the class through the rear view mirror and I could see it and, I, and I'm sitting there. I'm like, in my heart, I was like, I, I, I don't want to do this. I was afraid for the first time ever that I could remember, maybe since Scott Molina defended me, was, was a now fear. I was afraid. And the the class ended. They they did it. They all collected together to do a debrief, and I I, I started the car and and I drove well, that hour home. And yeah, that was a a really a, a rough time for me to reconcile that the person who I thought I was isn't who I am, and to have to redefine that person. Um. And that was hard for me. Um, I think if I ever had a midlife crisis, it was probably then. Um, I made myself go back the following day, and and um, you know my name is still on the top of the leaderboard. You know there at Santa Cruz Central for the fastest mile ever run there. Um, not only did it make me functional, um, it it gave me an opportunity to pursue my passion, which is health and fitness. And I'm grateful for that. You know, a lot of people ask me, they're like, oh, you're so gung-ho on CrossFit. I'm like, look, you got your family, your friends, and your health. They gave me my health. I'm grateful. That is incredible. 
I, I personally do remember the first time I entered a CrossFit box and I, was I too was very intimidated. Uh, and then, yeah, because yeah, I, I consider myself a pretty decently fit person. People who, mm-hmm. know, who know me personally, who know maybe watching my content, no, I'm pretty, I'm very fit compared to the average person. But even to that day when I walked in there, I'm just like, wow, this is, uh, this is, this is different. And to your point that you've talked about before, and we'll definitely get into, you're kind of highlighting the, the importance of training modality and not feeling like, you know, crossfitting encompasses three major, I guess, sports in one with Olympic lifting, aerobic capacity and gymnastics, right? So mm-hmm. you may be solid and been training in one of those modalities your whole life, which you will crush. Um, which I'm, which you just did. You talked about like you went and did that mile run and still to this day have the fastest <laughs> time. But it's funny when you then incorporate two other skill sets. Like if I combine rugby and fencing, uh, I guarantee you I would suck at that sport despite playing rugby my whole life. <laughs> so <laughs> that's where specificity comes in. Um, what was your mile? What's your what was your mile time? By the way, what you what was your mile time for that? Um, that's so that it's called the Caldwell Mile, and it's long. Um, I ran five twelve, but you know I was somewhere around four fifty five. Um, yeah, and a couple so of years a ago time. I ran. A couple of years ago I ran four fifty seven. Um, I'm probably now five forty. Five forty. You know, I I I recently got a pair of shoes. Um, you know these high these these high platform shoes. They have a a, a forty millimeter uh, sole on them, and um, uh, so Nike's making some. You know that have the carbon plate in it. Uh, mm-hmm. That was in sub two, and and then uh, Adidas. Well, now they're all making them with these carbon fiber inserts. Um, so I got a set of them from Adidas, and and they look. They. I'm gonna just show you really quick. Yeah, show you. Oh, wow. That is a thick sole. So what it has, though, is it has these five carbon fiber rods that are like outside diameter, maybe size of a pencil, and they line up with the metatarsal bones of your, your foot. And when you toe off, they preload those, those carbon fiber rods. And so the story says is that you should get the spring-like effect. Well, you've been around long enough, you realize there's so much nonsense out there. I mean, there's been very, very few times Callaway created something innovative with the, you know, big Bertha that was a real value. Yeah. Um, disc wheels in cycling, real mm-hmm. value. This I'm like, I don't know. So I let it sit there for, I don't know, five weeks. And finally my wife's like, look, you've got it. You've got to, you can't just let Adidas. They want some feedback. So I went out for a five mile run and, and at the end of this five mile run, I'm like, Hmm, I got to do an 800 for time. I haven't done anything for time in, you know, a couple of years. And I knew I I teach, you know, a class here and I knew of an 800 meter loop. And so at the end of this, I go do an 800 meter loop and I run it in 240. I'm like, just not just at the end of five miles. And I'm like, and I went and looked up like, I wonder how fast, like, to, if you're a 60 year old to get on the podium on, you know, Masters Worlds, like for the mile for time. And it was a 516. <laughs> and what's interesting is that I then ran 540. And my race weight used to be about 150. 
Well, one of the things that you realize is that for every um, pound that you can lose, you can make upwards of two seconds of time per mile. That's how much weight matters when you have to carry it in the movement of running. And I'm like, wow, if I got down to race weight, I could maybe... And then I immediately shut down that thought because my problem <laughs> is I'm, I'm old and you don't heal like you used to. And that volume <laughs> that I did is still, it's the wear and tear. And I don't know if I can you know, have a second peak in my athletic career and stay healthy through it. That's my problem. Um, anyway. You get given all these new toys, mate, and the new toys get you excited to try them out. Oh, That's exactly isn't it? it's what happens. <laughs> it's actually, I remember my last marathon we did, uh, you know, in November last year, and we had a lot of questions around footwear to the point yep. that even our, even our running group that we train with, uh, Shout out to the Social Athletic Club of New York City. Um, we were there's people like, oh, I'm all for Hoka. And there's people who like yeah. wanted the Brooks, and there's like, oh, it was it was absolutely hilarious the amount of um, ver- like varying responses there were for this. And once again, everybody's foot is different. So for me yeah. to tell you what shoe to wear uh, for a, an event that you know is pretty decent in length. Uh, and then could unfortunately lead to injuries based on the fact that your foot strike is uh, not correct. It's just unrealistic. And so the best thing to do would be maybe to get a, a, a variance of them all and find out what works for you. Because just because Chris puts yeah. on this Adidas and it is awesome doesn't mean it's going to be right for you. But in saying that, do you have a, do you have a variety of you know, uh, footwear that you definitely tell people to go check out? Because it's what – has worked for me. And mm-hmm. you're right. It's, it's part of it is, is that it is not a one size fits all. I mean, you know that about nutrition and, and, you know, meals, one diet for somebody isn't going to work for everybody. It's the same thing with shoes. And, and it's the same thing. Also, I mean, one of the huge contentions is, is your foot strike when you run, yeah. should you land on the ball of the, the foot and retrain yourself if you're heel striking um, with not an overstride, should should you really do that? Is that the best thing, or is your natural stride a heel strike? And it the problem is is that if you now change it, you run the risk of of creating a whole host of other problems. And that's how I was about shoes. So when I did triathlons, I was sponsored by Asics, and I love the Gel Kayano. I I, I I love it, and even to this day, I could wear that product. Um, my problem is, is that changing shoes. And so that's why wearing like, and switching to this new Adidas shoe is like, eh, I don't, I can't, first of all, it's, it's a pink color. I'm, I I don't have anything to match that up with. (laughs) And then two, it's got a 40 millimeter platform. Sure. I can't run the streets of Tennessee in a 40 millimeter pink shoe, but I do every day now because, because. I ended up liking it. That's crazy. I won't wear or use anything that I don't like. I won't. I won't do it um, just because I, I'm not going to ever make the mistakes that I used to. I'm not going to settle for something that is going to deliver mediocrity. It's also got to make you look super stylish, which is really <laughs> important. You know, like there In is Tennessee. 
It's in Tennessee, absolutely. The pink, you know, it's definitely out there. I would definitely do it. I couldn't get away with it. I would just do it because it felt good. But that's, uh, again, that's, that's just me. Well, um, let's place it. When you're flying down the road, even in pink shoes, it's just they're looking at someone flying. So, yeah. <laughs> that's such a good way of putting it. Oh, well surveyed, mate. Well surveyed. Mate, I do want to keep actually on this, this interest of, um, I guess, you know, apparel or technology or wearables for a second. Um, and yeah. we'll get into more specifics on, on training modality. Now, back when you were training and we talked about the likes of the very first four-minute uh, mile, um, John Landy, an Australian runner, just passed away this week, but he was famous for uh, – he was a very fast runner and back in their days, you know, there was no technology to really do anything other than a stopwatch, which wasn't as – digital as it is today but now right. we have all these things going out there we have everything from aura ring and whoop to understand you know our hrv amongst other things as well we've got different mm-hmm. types of watches apple has continued to up- upload the game um but like i think a big part of all of this is it's all cool to have all this information and the ability to track one how do we use them properly and two how do we respond to the data to then create our own modalities to actually improve our performance. And I guess that's where someone like you comes in, right? Yeah. I think that's a, that's really where this information becomes almost too much for the consumer. You know, the Garmin mm-hmm. watch, for example, it's an incredible product. It, the amount of, of solid information, accurate information that it provides you is it's, it's remarkable that you can collect this information. The problem is, is that there is so much in there that what do you do with it? I mean, let's just talk about the basics. I don't want to even get into like stride lengths and, and, and stride frequency and imbalances between left foot and right foot and vertical oscillation. Let's not even look at those things because they don't, people don't even know that that's, let's talk about heart rate, just heart rate. Let's just say you get your heart rate information. What do you do with that? And, and, and that, that is where just taking that just basics of heart rate and, and everybody, you know, looks up and they could figure out zone training and all of that. But is that the correct thing to do? Is it the, the highest and best value of training time to focus on just heart rate? Or is there other tools that you should be looking at, other tools that you should be implementing? that are more valuable, that create adaptation faster. For example, like if, if I end up, so my lactate threshold is somewhere around a heart rate of 165. All right, so let's just say that Chris wants to do all of his intervals at 165 heart rate because that's where your lactate threshold is. And the more time I spend around lactate threshold, I can raise my lactate threshold and you know I can create that adaptation. So instead of me, my maximum sustainable pace being at 165, if I could raise it to 168, it's not that it's going to be any less painful. I'll just be able to move faster at the same level of discomfort. All right. Let's say I do a workout around 165. Let's just say I'm doing 400s around the track and I'm trying to finish with my heart rate at 165. Well, imagine how fast I have to run on the first one to get my heart rate that high. It's going to be blazing fast. Let's say it's 65 seconds. Let's say I'm doing 10 of them. Well, how fast would I run on number 10 in order to end at 165? Maybe 80 seconds. And so 
The problem is, is that now what I've done is I've trained myself at the same level of hurt, meaning my heart rate at 165, but what have my muscles learned to do? See, when we train, we have a twofold approach. We have to train our cardiorespiratory system, our metabolic pathways, right? The aerobic system, the anaerobic systems. But we also have to train our muscle fibers. We have to train those slow twitch and we have to train the fast twitch. And in that example, what I just told you was, is our metabolic pathways, our energy, heart rate of 165 stayed constant. But what did my muscles learn to do? In number one, we taught them to go fast. And then gradually we taught them to go slower and slower and slower and slower. Was that a success? And so part is, is that we want to be aware of what we're doing. That training mass that, that, that came out years ago and, and people were like doing track workouts on it. And I'm like, what the heck? The purpose of that is for a football player to experience what it's like to do a down and out pattern deep into the fourth quarter because they're breathing through a straw. You're doing intervals on the track, breathing through a straw. All you're doing is suffering the same and teaching your muscles to go slow. It's a total waste of your time. And so that's where like, we look at these, these wearables and I don't, it gives tremendous information, but the consumer is uncertain in what to do with that. How do you, if you have an imbalance between your right leg and your left leg, ground contact time is 52% on the left, 48 on the right. How do you fix that? <laughs> that's the problem is that it, we need to incorporate, and that's where the mismatch is, is that we have the scientific community on one side of the equation, and then we have the coaching and training on the other side of the equation, and they're not talking. Sure. Yeah, this is um, that. This is this is what's. I, I love this stuff. I love this stuff. And like, <laughs> I, I, there was like seventeen questions. I'm writing down these notes as you probably see. I'm writing down. I'm like, oh, this is going to be the midterm. I'm going to make sure I'm going to nail this. Um, You're so, so, <laughs> so just to just to pay a bit of context for those uh, listening in. Obviously, as you inc- if you were to run your first, uh, say you know, lap at that 65 seconds to build your heart rate up because it's so high and you're working so hard already just to even get to a homeostatic arresting environment. As you continue, your effort to get to that point will not be as hard to get to because the effort is already high, meaning your heart rate will already be burning. As a result, you will not be putting your endurance, you will not be putting so much effort onto your body physically because you just you're not pushing yourself that way already because you're already just aerobically and high, like from your metabolic pathways, they're already working so hard. So question to you then, mate, is what would you do instead to continue to build that anaerobic threshold? I would focus more on the speed. So what you're really trying to do is get the muscles – comfortable with what you ultimately want them to be prepared for in your test, in your event. So if you're training for a 5K, what you want them to do is is have the ability of managing the volume. So they have to have the capacity to be able to run the 5,000 meters, but they also, the muscles have to have the, the speed to hit whatever your target is. So meaning if you want to run 5,000 meters and you want to run it at an eight minute mile pace, then you got to prepare for two things. The specific training must build you ultimately to 
where your last workout is an unbroken 5K at an eight-minute pace. And the way you do that is by adding more and more volume at that eight-minute mile pace. Now, obviously, today you can't do that because it's a goal. So what you do is you break up in training the volume by giving you rest. And that's what's called interval training. You're going to do an interval at your targeted speed, and then you're going to recover. And then you're back at the targeted speed. Because you are taking the recovery, it allows you to manage the volume in that workout at the targeted race speed. And that's what's called specific training. What you need to do is as you progress towards race day is slowly squeeze out the amount of rest that you're taking until the last logical step is an unbroken 5,000 meters at eight minute pace. So that's ultimately is, is how it's done. What you have to do is recognize you want to train the muscles. So in the example that I gave you, instead of at a heart rate of 165, what you would want to do is you would want to pick a speed for that workout and maintain that speed for all 10 rounds. So if the workout was, you know, 75 seconds of per 400 um, and the first one that you did, your heart rate would be at one, you know, in the low 150s because it wasn't that hard. Uh, you take your 75 seconds of rest and you repeat that. Well, as you progress through that workout, your heart rate's going to climb up to into the 170s but the muscles will have maintained that same speed. And so the reason why that is important is what did your muscles learn? And muscle memory is really important. If you train the muscles to go slow, they're going to want to go slow. And I have a lot of people that come to me and they're like, you know, I really need your help and I don't know what's wrong. And I'm like, what happened? And they say, well, I tried to row a 2000 meter for time and I really wanted to break seven minutes. Well, how'd it go? Uh, it's 7.35. I'm all, 7.35? It's not even close. I'm all, how'd you train? And they're like, I just thought I could do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You, you have to prepare the body so it's not surprised. You have to. And that's the problem if you look online and you want to run a marathon. All they're doing is preparing you for the volume side of the equation. That's all they're doing. They're giving you stamina but they're not looking at creating adaptation in all your fibers. You know, a good example of that is Jason Kalipa. Jason Kalipa could put 400 pounds over his head, 400 pounds, but he fell asleep in 2009 in a 7K run. He passed out with 100 meters to go. So what was the problem? What was his issue? And the truth was, is that all I did was slowed him down and targeted his slow twitch muscle fibers in the largest muscle group in his body, his legs. And that's what we should be doing is we should be looking at the, the body as a whole, the structure, and what are they leaving behind and making sure that you're creating value in all aspects of that person's anatomy. And that's where a wearable really could help identifying what are you leaving behind? massive time yeah it's like yeah like the heart rate stuff like uh you know i i was doing a lot of zone training for me the for my marathon last year and i felt it helped me learn to go slower and i mean the sense that i felt 
for the past couple of marathons I've done, I've I've always hit it at a pace where my body would lose out too early. And so mm-hmm. I was never training. I was, I was never training like too slow and I was never training too fast. And so I never got to the point where I could t- teach my body to run at the pace it needs to for that prolonged period of time. Um, and I ended up running the fastest one I've done so far. And I did a 328, which I was stoked wow. about. Uh, That's and awesome. so Thanks, man. I'll do a 315 end of this year. I'm putting it out there. But I think we – What's Boston for how old you are? Oh, I think it's it's three. Yeah, three, You got to get older. (laughs) I got to get older, man. I got to get older. (laughs) Exactly. So I'll get there one day. (laughs) You're too young. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm on that kid ride again where I can't go on it yet because I'm too young to go on the ride. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, no, the – the, the interesting thing is like I, I actually never looked at my time, which is kind of going against what you said. I kept looking at my heart rate just to make sure I always got under – I was keeping it under a zone. And that was during my training. Obviously, during my during my actual event, I was checking my time just to make sure I was hitting the pace I wanted to and keeping it in the zone. But um, to that point, I know the wearables become more – like you, you'll notice to make sure you keep them to a pace – like uh, you're putting yourself under pace and obviously giving yourself certain rest during that time. But what do you think about low heart rate training? So, so you know Phil Maffetone, Maffetone yes. Methan. So yeah. he's a good friend. Matter of fact, in the 80s, we used to work together. Um, so all of that initial work, and I'm a huge fan of what he, he talks about. Um, and, and so like you had mentioned, when you were doing long training for your marathon, you looked at heart rate. So would I. Because I have to make sure that I'm staying within that aerobic threshold space. That's all what you're trying to do. And that's where I use heart rate. Heart rate is very important at low intensity, developing that, that aerobic threshold, right? That, that balance between where that oxygen is converting 50% of your energy from fat and 50% of your energy is coming from carbohydrate. You know, you want to always retain that ability to burn and utilize fat as a fuel. You want to, to become fat adapted. And, and so it's important that you, you don't lose sight of, of that particular intensity. So for me, that's a heart rate of around, in the movement of running right now, about a heart rate of 132. Maffetone is very close to that. You know, you take 180 minus 58, and that would be my target there. Plus or minus five beats is the range that I would run my aerobic threshold, easy paced, long runs. Um, like for example, if I was training for a marathon. So I think that what you did was a hundred percent correct. Um, I like that. I don't like though, that that should be the only prescription because the problem is, is that your only way to create fast twitch muscle fiber development is to go long, essentially fatigue and fail all of your slow twitch fibers so they have no more stamina. And so when those fibers fatigue and fail and you still have some miles to run till you get back to you know your finishing location, your body's forced, your brain is forced to recruit fast twitch fibers to continue out the remainder of that run. So essentially you start with the slowest of the slow and you end with the fastest of the fast twitch fibers. My problem with that is, is that what we should be doing when we're recruiting and utilizing fast twitch fibers is actually moving fast. And so that would mean that, yeah, 
that would mean you're talking about, you know, the repeated sprints or the repeated long efforts with adequate rest in between. But this is another factor that you've highlighted before is like how much is that will still be dependent upon the individual, right? right. That's where like understanding, um, you know, say, say that I wanted to do 5Ks in 18 minutes, right? If I yep. wanted to hit 5Ks in 18 minutes, I would have to understand my race time, which is uh, my race pace per K, yep. which is uh, easy to understand. And then from there, we're going to have to, what do I do I run at that pace or do I run fast in that pace with rest in between and how much rest? Again, that will vary depending on the individual, right? Right. So for example, on your long run, you would have been, it would have been great if you finished your long run and then you did some opposite end of the spectrum speed work. So if you think about it, like think about the muscle fiber spectrum and on one end you have these slow twitch. And on the other end, you have fast twitch dominant athletes. So Usain Bolt is on one end mm. and an extreme endurance like myself would be on the other end. All right. Now, what we want to do is in our training, if we're running long and slow, then we're going to want to contrast that with something short and extremely fast. So at the end of your long run, what you should do to force the recruitment of those fast twitch fibers is do 500 five 100 meter sprints with you know three minutes of rest in between essentially what you're doing is you're balancing your 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 recruitment from the slow twitch all the way to the fastest of the fast now if i was training for a 5k i would obviously have in the middle my 5k targeted speed all right so let's just say that was eight minute mile speed was your target well in in some of your training you're going to want to do nine minute mile as well as seven minute mile. Some of your training is going to want to be at six minute mile and 10 minute mile. That's what you need to be doing is you need to be creating essentially a funnel. And as you're getting closer and closer, it becomes more specific. So we call it general endurance type work. And then general speed is the contrast. And then as we get into closer race date, it's more specific to the event, meaning the volume, and the speed. You cannot forget the the importance of speed. You've got to train the muscles so that they're not surprised. This is awesome. I feel like I uh, I feel I got you on the podcast selfishly and now I'm getting a free consultation out of it for my own training for this year's marathon. This is awesome. Um so I'm going to I'm going to continue to double click on that. Uh Training at the gym. I'm just loving this. I know, I know I can listen to the listeners already just going, oh, writing down notes. Cool. Got to be doing that. I can see the squad that we have in New York. We're going to have a big squad this year in New York with uh, the marathon um, doing a doing our long runs on our Saturdays and then finishing up with the sprints down Kenmare down in Olita. So I can already see that happening um, <laughs> just awesome. as a result of the knowledge here. That's awesome. But thanks, man. Yeah. So you, but you've also addressed, you've addressed uh, fast switch fibers you know, obviously important, particularly in power and short stuff, but just as equally play a role in this specific of increasing your speed. What about activity at the gym? And and t- typically like, you know, what kind of rep counts are you looking at with your athletes to improve their, um, I guess, power output and power endurance? So I always... I always believe now that you should do some type of, of, of in the gym training, strength training, uh, to strengthen neglected muscle groups. And one of the, the most commonly neglected muscle groups is the core. 
um, runners, they need to realize that in a cyclist, swimmers, golfers, the link between the upper body and the lower body is the core. And if you have a weak core, then you have a weak energy transfer between the two of those. There's instability there. And, you know, one of the things that, that I have really been fascinated by is Rich Froning. He has, you know, arguably, you know, one of the best CrossFit athletes ever. He's won the CrossFit games four times as an individual. And I think five times on a team, he's the most mm-hmm. dominant athlete in the sport. And He's got no cartilage in one leg, one knee. And I believe that one of the reasons why is because his knee, he's able to stabilize it through the strength of his his leg, but also the stability of his core strength. He has no instability in controlling his upper body and the lower body, and he experiences no pain. Um, and he runs three times a week. So one of the things that I would highly encourage is, is to be looking at, at the core and whether or not that is a potential weakness. Um, you know, one of the the areas that, that I talk about is, is, you know, the value proposition that a coach or a trainer is offering an athlete. And if there was a marathon runner that walked in the door, what is the value proposition? Because the first thing that you're going to think is, oh, I got to look at their, you know, their nutrition, blah, 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 blah. I, you know what? I can't tell you that that's not what's going to get them to sign up. It's, it's, it's too comp. All they want to know is how you can make me fast. That's it. Give me the pill to make me fast. And so part is, is that we have to assume that they've optimized their legs. So what about the rest of their body? Are they leaving other muscle groups behind that help them in the movement of running? For example, the upper body. Is the upper body fully adapted? Is it optimized? And one of the things that we do know is that, you know, lactic acid, when that, when we overload muscle groups with, you know, that lactic acid, that acidity, eventually, if it builds up high enough, will interfere with the muscle's ability to function. We also know through lactate shuttle that when we overload a muscle, that lactic acid, it goes into the bloodstream. And all it's trying to do is find vacant slow twitch fibers. And if you've developed those slow twitch fibers, it will grab that lactate and burn it as a fuel. And when it does, it takes the fatigue causing metabolites and takes and removes those from the body. Well, in the movement of running, you're going to quickly overload those legs with lactic acid. It's eventually going to spill into the space between those muscle groups, the neighboring muscle groups that will get overloaded, go into the neighboring muscles and then hit the bloodstream. And now it's shooting up into the upper body, just trying to find vacant available slow twitch fibers to take the lactate as a fuel, burn it. And when it does, it removes that, those fatigue causing, um, metabolites. Okay. (laughs) How's the capacity of your upper body? What if I improve the capacity of your upper body to clear more lactate faster, meaning improve the clearance of that lactate so that you can remove those fatigue-causing metabolites so that now the legs can go faster? So part of it, you must examine yourself and what am I leaving behind? Have I fully optimized the other non-key running muscles? And what about the supporting muscle groups? One of the things, like I said, like Rich Froning, Rich Froning, when I started with him, it was in 2014. He had already won the games four times. 
they had an event there that was called Triple Three in 2014. And my boy Jason smashed him. Rich ends up in this workout, which was a 3,000-meter row, 300 double-unders jump rope, and a three-mile run. Rich Froning walked the run. Here's a four times champion and he walked and everybody was like, well, how is that possible? Well, one of the things that Rich did was he trained short intervals in the movement of running, high intensity with lots of rest. So his muscles wanted short time domain, high speeds, and a lot of rest in between intervals. That's what it was looking for. Well, this was a 30 plus long minute event. And if you take a guy that trains that way, his rate of fatigue as he progresses deeper into longer time domains, he's going to be the guy that walks first. So when I started with him, one of the things that I realized right away is his fatigue factor, his rate is slowing, the coefficient is slowing. So as he moves into longer time domains was higher than anybody I'd ever tested before, meaning his endurance was so bad that all I did was random slow. Now, that doesn't mean that he was slow. When I started with him, he ran a mile in six minutes and he ran a lap around the track 400 meters in 60 seconds. Pretty good. I ran him two times a week. Longest run he did on the track was 6,400 meters. And his mile time went in the 12 weeks from six minutes to 541 by doing no more than what I just told you. Interestingly enough... And this is what is, is, this is where it takes some, some courage as a coach to, to buck the trend, to, bunk, to, to go against what science is saying. And science says, if you do too much running, it's going to interfere with your strength, you know, this interference effect. That's weighing on me heavily as I'm, I, I get asked, Rich calls me and asks you know, me to help him. I knew I could make him a better runner, but what if I ruined him? as a CrossFit athlete, I mean, he was a four times champion. And, you know, at that time I still had a full-time job. I was doing everything for free. And I figured, you know what, if, if it doesn't work out, I'll just, I'll disappear from CrossFit and just go back to my regular job. And at least I can <laughs> hang out with him for 12 weeks. And so, <laughs> so what happened though was, and Rich famously has acknowledged it. I mean, it's on video of him talking about it. All of his strength numbers went up. He's a strength and conditioning coach was, he has a, a degree in exercise science, four times champion, and yet all of his strength numbers went up. He was shocked by it. His vertical leap went from 31 to 33 inches during that 12 weeks, and all I did was random slow. <laughs> One simple thing. One simple thing. To see, to see him train at a lower, like, to build out that would be actually pretty interesting considering how intense his training modality typically is. He's also someone who could wear that pink running shoe down Nashville and get away with it because <laughs> the guy's built like an Adonis. His, oh, his right. clean and jerk and snatch Olympic lifting technique is just next to nice crazy. And the fact that you tell me he's got no cartilage left in one knee astounds me as a result of it. Um, he's yeah, truly once again, incredible, incredible. But, yeah. but here's a guy with all of that knowledge, all of that experience, and this is where – I, I really, I, I, I hand it to him. And same thing like a Matt Frazier, you know, when they asked for me to help them back in both of them, 20, you know, 14, was that they realized they needed help. I mean, imagine the, the level, Rich, 
what he knew he knew back then, and yet he asked for help. Imagine if you're sitting in, at home and nowhere near a Matt Fraser caliber, a Rich Fronin caliber, a Katrin, a Tia, all have come to me to, for me to help them and reaching out because they don't know what to do. How mm. would you think that you know what to do? And that's where I think that this this day and age with 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 technology is like when you reached out and, and we started communicating, people are accessible now. Yeah. And and reach out and ask for help. And there's tons of people out there, coaches and trainers, that could give you some guidance. But if you think that you're gonna read an article in Shape magazine and think you know what you're doing. It might be the wrong thing. And Rich was doing the wrong thing. Matt, well, speaking of reaching out, uh, obviously we're going to talk a bit further as well, but already you've shown a number of different key takeaways for us. And I know that you do consulting. There are courses as such and even personalized ways that we can get beneficial ways of working with you. So Matt, what's the best way to reach out to you as well? So aerobiccapacity.com is my website. You can go to aerobiccapacity on Instagram. Uh, one of the things that if, if you're a first responder, uh, I, so I do a lot of work. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm coming up to New York City uh, tomorrow doing a seminar. Um, I do a lot of educational work. Um, but if you're a first responder in terms of programming, firefighters, fire department in New York, I provide you those, those workouts for free. Um, they're the only groups be besides military that I do it for free. So if you are, um, it's easy. If I have your email, I could just put you on a Google Doc and, and get you started. Uh, a lot of it is back what I said in the beginning. A lot of people, they don't know where, what to do. They don't know, especially if you've lost your fitness, you know, because life got in the way, how do you start back up again? And so uh, a lot of first responders, uh, life has gotten in the way. And I, I really, and I feel strongly about it, of providing them something that is, is a, a better first approach to finding their fitness. Um, but the key is, is, is doing it through personalization. You know, a lot of people, personalization is a big buzzword now these days, and everybody is wanting it because of the value it provides. The problem is no one wants to pay for it. And mm. I've come up with, because being a math guy, algorithms and equations that look at prior results and is able to personalize. And so for first responders, I provide them this at, at zero cost. Um, and so I've been doing it with the fire department in New York. Matter of fact, I was up there last week supporting them and the NYPD. Um, Unreal. Man. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. It's a great group of people though. I mean, I just imagine. riddled though with, Cardiovascular disease in, in firefighting has been the number one killer of firefighters since 2006, ignoring, you know, 9-11. Of course. But, but wow. number one is, is cardiorespiratory since 2006. So part is, is that I want to be a source to help them. And, and it's not that I'm looking for anything. There's no angle at all. I'm just, I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to be a part of health and fitness and if I could give back, that's the community I want to help. You're a legend, mate. Well, that's we'll put that in the show notes for sure, mate. And that's that's incredible. You do that. There, the first responders have been through some, Shoot. have been through a lot recently, and will always continue to be just because of the nature of the beast. Yep. Um, yep. 
But I'm sure you, the way that you would train a first responder is different to someone who's looking to run a mile at a certain pace or someone training for their first true performance-based marathon or even to their true first marathon in general. So yeah, I know we talk a little bit, we've broached on the subject around specificity. We are big on bio-individuality in the foods department yeah. and, of course, that, in performance and activities. That's why I so, really like what you do. You oh, And thanks, you have come up with something that is it's easy to understand. You know, the categories, the colors, for example, and the categories that you've broken down the food in, it's like you can manage it in your head. And I always tell people, if, if, if someone can't explain something to a third party, then it was too complicated. You have to put it in a way that someone that doesn't understand science, doesn't understand nutrition, can tell a third party and they get it. Yeah. They get it. And that's a very, that's a challenging thing to do. And, and, but you did it. You, you created something that was unique. And, you know, one of the things that I do is, is you must look at the event, but you also must look at the strengths and weaknesses of the individual. This, this, what we call an athlete centered model. Most of the programming that you get today is an event based model. It's just looking at the event. It doesn't care what your strengths and weaknesses are. It doesn't even take those into consideration. And that's why people get hurt. That's why people don't stick with the program. Retention, in my opinion, I mean, I'd be interested in your thought. That's the number one test of a good coach, right? If they can keep an athlete coming back, then they're doing something right. But if you can't stick with my nutrition plan, then something's wrong. And my, it's like, I, I, I do get, I do get really interested in the relationship of an athlete versus the coach in that regard, because too often I find or hear there's either little things going on, but if, if they talk about how they're still learning, how they're still winning or how they're continuing to get something and cannot wait to get back and and be inspired and driven and, and um, you know, provided a path of guidance towards their success. It doesn't matter about everything else going on. At the end of the day, there's a relationship there for a – it's a profession. And in the, the day, as you said, if you can explain to someone else who's never been accustomed to it in a way that's relatable, that's the win, right? right. And so as a coach, it's so important for it. For you, you've dealt with – I, I, I don't know this. I'm going to take a wild stab out there. You've trained a number of different athletes in CrossFit and the way that you trained Jason versus Rich was not the same. Right. I'm sure you trained them completely different. Well, I mean, same right. sport. That's absolutely correct because their strengths and weaknesses were different and Matt Frazier, his was different. But number one, you have to be able to keep them engaged. It's the same thing. Like I, I think I read somewhere on something you 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 put out there is that it's got to be delicious. If it's not, if it doesn't taste good, <laughs> then they're not coming. And, 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 and eaters are finicky. You, you get one bad meal from them and it's like, meh, he's lost the touch. And, yeah. and it's the same thing with programming and training. When, when personalization is wildly off, unfortunately, that's what the athlete remembers. You know, the, the, the athlete only remembers their last workout. And you know what? In that workout, if the last repetition they do is bad, they only remember that. So you have to, to, to 
create programming that's engaging, it's motivating, but it also, when they recognize it, it's seemingly impossible sometimes that they look at it and they go, you know what? I, I, I have confidence in, in, in my coach, in my chef. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give it a try because they've never let me down. And when they finish something that didn't look appealing or was seemingly impossible, that's how confidence is created. And I think that, that what you and I do is, is the same in the sense that what we're trying to do is, is to educate in order to create confidence. 100% mate, chanta for chanta. You got the, uh, yeah, the delicious thing is just people aren't going to come back. doesn't matter how, like I don't want people to come to my recipes because they're healthy. I want people to come to my recipes because they're delicious and they just ha- happen to be healthy. Because that's how you be motivated. That's how you be inspired to live this lifestyle. For people, like th- th- exactly what you just said. And so for taking that a step further, what you were talking about is like to get them engaged, there has to be some sort of, intrinsic motivation for them whether it be flavor and the the you know the serotonin they get from that or it could be the output of confidence they get as a result of winning something that was seen as impossible right you've said before you said before to design programming that it is well it feels like it's impossible it's not to the coach it's not to the athlete it could be right so that when you do get them to succeed they intrinsically succeed they are so excited they are pumped they feel they feel like they've achieved something. And that's what you're talking about by like keeping them interested. That's right. And and as part of that, it's it's about the educational piece. And a lot of coaches, they they don't want to 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 share their knowledge because that's their source of control. I don't sure. like that at all. I want to give them the tools. You know, when I went so after about, I don't know, 18 months, maybe two years with Rich, I went to him and I said, hey. I know I'm the only guy that you use and I know you like writing your own stuff. I've taught you everything. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. And he cuts me off. He's like, he's like, I I don't know what you're talking about, but if you think I'm going to do or try to do what you do, I'm not doing that. I would like you to like keep providing this because what we're trying to do is we're trying to give them the tools to build that knowledge base so that they can actually do a deeper dive into higher value opportunity. And the yeah. problem is, is that if you're, tr- I'll, I'll give you an example of that. About five years ago, I started introducing into the CrossFit space active recovery. And, and active recovery used to be an hour long row. And I kept saying, no, no, no. An hour row is a workout. And I said, what we need to be doing is we need to be looking at movement, not running or riding, but any movement, and what are we leaving behind? And CrossFit notoriously is high-intensity interval work. Where is the easy side of the equation, right? Like we were talking about Maffetone earlier. And one of the things that, that people don't realize is athletes, individuals, is what's preventing them from getting better. Do they need more speed-based training? Do they need more fast twitch muscle fiber, more anaerobic adaptation? Or do you need more aerobic slow twitch adaptation? Like, What do you need that's preventing you from getting to the next step? Because it's one of those two things. You need one of those more than the other. And so the assessment's important, but more importantly, your protocol has to address both sides of the equation 
And most of the time, it addresses only one side is, I need to work harder. I need to go faster. I need to do more fast twitch, more anaerobic. But let me ask you, if you think about that movement of a push-up, think about how many push-ups you can do without any rest. And now imagine your goal is to do 10 more. What is preventing you right now from doing 10 more? You as an athlete have to take ownership of your own fitness and tell me, the coach, what's standing in your way of your goal. And the problem is at the highest levels, athletes can't answer that question. They don't know. Do you need to do more one rep bench press? Like, is that the goal? And is it your strength that's limiting you? Or is it that you're just getting tired? Is it fatigue? And for most people, if you could do 20 push-ups, you're just getting tired, meaning you can't clear that fatigue faster than it's coming in. But what if you could? Well, then you could do more. So then the solution is, is fix your ability to recover, which is aerobic fitness. One of the major measures of, of aerobic fitness is how fast can you recover? How fast can you clear fatigue? I am incredible at my ability to clear fatigue. My weakness is my ability to feed in intensity, to feed in fatigue. But there's a balance in your body, right? That balance of fatigue coming in and fatigue going out, that is your maximum sustainable pace. So what is holding your pace down? Speed or recovery? And what people need to realize is, is that one of the major qualities in a workout is recovery, right? We have volume, right? The number of reps you do or the number of, of the distance, the meters that you go. We have our intensity, our speed or the load that we're lifting. But we also, for doing intervals, we have rest. And the question is, is are you always sitting around and doing nothing for your recovery? And if you want to learn something, you know, I put a stimulus on the body, we create an adaptation. With good nutrition, good recovery, we create an adaptation. If you're always sitting in a chair for your stimulus, then that's what you get good at. But what we want to do is we want to get you to clear fatigue in the same movement pattern that just created it. Usain Bolt, he is a sprinter, and that's his, his, his movement. None of his events were over 20 seconds. He doesn't need to do five-mile runs. But you know what he needs to do is realize that he's got the prelims, the semis, the finals, you know, in three different events. He's got to recover and be ready to go. He realizes that he's got to be able to clear out fatigue as well. And he's got to do that by developing his slow twitch aerobic fibers. So how does he do it if he's not doing five-mile runs? He does a 100-meter sprint, and then he walks the remainder of the lap. He does a 100-meter sprint and then jogs. He creates fatigue in the running muscles with the sprint, and then he clears it in the walk. So if you want to get good at the movement of a push-up, don't target volume. Don't target that intensity side and put in higher intensity. Focus on the recovery. Instead of sitting and doing nothing, like if you want to get better at push-ups, right, you do a set and then rest and do nothing. What I want you to do is do a set and then flip over on your back and with like a PVC pipe in your hand and do a floor press, mimicking the movement of a push-up on your back, lifting that PVC, but do it as a walk intensity, like Usain Bolt is doing. If, as you improve, that PVC pipe is no longer going to offer that same stimulus. So now you're going to pick up a five-pound plate and move a five-pound plate. 
Soon the five won't be anything. You'll do 10 pounds, then 20 pounds. Pretty soon, the recovery side of the equation matches up with the intensity side. You need to focus on the side of the equation that's limiting performance. And everybody always gravitates to, I need to work harder. I need to go faster. And that is not the thing that limited uh, Jason Kalipa, Rich Froning, Matt Frazier, Camille, Katrin, Tia. We just slowed them down. We worked the neglected muscle groups. It's not about doing more one rep bench press. Bang. <laughs> Bang. <laughs> just like, just um, I'm now going to walk into Equinox and see every person doing push-ups with PVC pipe as their prop afterwards. I'm looking forward to seeing that moment. But 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 did wow. the, were you able to track that in your head, right? And that's what we were saying earlier is that it's got to oh, be logical. Yeah. And it's absolutely. And that's what's absolutely. empowering is is you are taking some information and you're 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 essentially pitching it to the customer. You're my customer right here, but you're really my athlete. But if you don't buy into it, you'll see you later. This is just a bunch of hocus yeah. pocus. 100%. Right. 100%, That's why it's got to be logical. You know, I, it's got to be e- yeah. easy and replicable. And yeah, you're right, man. It's got to be in that space. Well, that's why, like, you know, I, I, I told this story before and, and Frazier, he wanted to, to, to win on this assault bike. And part was, is, is how do we get that to happen? And, and ultimately, and just fast forwarding is that I told him, I said, you know, one of the things that you have to recognize is that by riding an assault bike, your arms and legs are moving at the same time. And if you only develop your legs, meaning there's no contribution of fatigue from the upper body, the legs can do more work. So you got to train the legs separately. But if you want to train the legs separately, we want to also look at efficiency, meaning what movement is similar to the movement of riding a bike? Well, the movement pattern of riding a bike is very similar to that of running. So if we do that and he's riding on a stationary bike, and we want to maximize adaptation to the movement of running, how would we do it? Well, part of it is, is that you have to look at the RPMs, right? A revolution per minute on the bike, which is a complete pedal turn, or your steps per minute, your stride frequency. So how many steps do you take a minute? In running, two steps equals one RPM. So if Matt runs at 180 steps in a minute, then what should his cadence be on a bike? Most frequently, 90 most of the time, he was in a what we call the carne grande. He was in, you know, the big ring and and pushing a heavy gear, and he was like at sixty RPMs, which is one hundred and twenty steps. Waste of time. It's all about the modality, mate. Right. It's all about the modality. It's all about understanding specifics. And honestly, as everyone's listening in here, just like looking inside yourself, understanding what you are trying to achieve, understanding what your training modality is, whether what sport it is, what profession, if it even is a sport, maybe you're trying to achieve a goal. If you're trying to get more push-ups, squat more, if you're trying to get to a position where you can bench press or even just take a mile run at a pace that you've always wanted to, it's all about getting the specifics down pat for you and then getting the right active recovery in between that would still get you to improve those performance adaptations. Absolutely. I mean, very well said. Part of it is, is that individuals have to take some responsibility. They have to ask, what is my goal? And once you've identified those things, the goal, what's preventing me from doing that? 
because you're trying to find the highest value of time. Like you, as part, part, do you just automatically go, you know what, we're going to make you gluten-free. Oh, you know what we're going to do is we're going to put you on Whole30. Oh, you know what we're going to do is we're going to take you off of sugar and alcohol. It's like, we've got to have a starting point and it's got to be from the individual that is giving us that guidance. Like for me, if you said to me, and I asked you what's standing in your way on push-ups and you said, it's my strength, I'm going to go for it with you. I just need you to take some ownership. All right, we're going to work on your one rep bench press strength because that's what you said is your weakness. Mm. I'm going to listen to you and we're going to go that way because I need you to commit. Yeah, that's where I've had the biggest struggle with firefighters is, is and a lot of politics and the chiefs. But one of the things that that you have to help them with is is providing them that guidance. And one of the things that firefighters use on the job is that air cylinder. That cylinder lasts a firefighter um, while they're active in a fire uh, about 20 minutes. Well, you're around 11,000 firefighters short in New York right now. I mean, that's how short you are. Um, how are you going to get more people? Well, you got 330 going through the academy two times a year. All right, so you're going to start adding more people. You throw in the overtime. That's still not going to be enough. But what if I can improve your ability to move and utilize oxygen through aerobic level training, meaning slowing you down so that you consume less oxygen while you move actively fighting a fire. And I increase the length of time on that cylinder from 20 minutes to 22 minutes. Well, now that 10 people in that firehouse, I just added another person without hiring anybody. That resonates. So your speed-based sprint training, that's the wrong approach because you don't need to have all of that. You have tools now. The problem that you still don't have is an individual has to fight a fire and they're on air. And so if you're on air, what is your consumption rate of that cylinder? And is that a limitation? Is it? And what are you doing about it? And they're not doing anything because they don't know what to do. So part is, is, is when you look at movement, functional movement, what is the opportunity and, and how do you define that? And it's got to be measurable because if like what I just said about fire and cylinder, you have to imagine in your head and it's got, that makes sense to me. And yes, it would work. You just absolutely epitomized the Epic Table podcast by demonstrating performance is just not within the grounds of athletes specific. You're talking about performance in everyday jobs, performance in particularly in the first responders uh, and that's why I love this, mate. This is this is awesome. Thanks, bro. I'm pumped for you. Thank you, man. I'm really pumped for you, dude. I really am. Well, um, well I'd love to. I'm gonna, uh, I'd love to come and hang with you. Some. I go to New York quite a bit. I mean, you're close, and you know the amount of stuff. I yeah, do, man. And, and I'd love to. We gotta make sure you get you in the studio. I, I want to make well. your fried. I want to make your fried chicken. Is what I want. I want to. <laughs> <laughs> Are you familiar with Nashville chicken? The fried chicken. The <laughs> I am very, I'm very familiar yeah, so, with I, It's very good. I, I, that's why I've looked at him like, I'm like, <laughs> make that fried chicken. <laughs> well, mate, it's been a pleasure. Been I haven't huge. felt it all like I'm hanging on a podcast at all. I've just been hanging with the dude. <laughs> like, Chris, mate, I, I really appreciate your time, mate. Same, um, same. If, if uh, as I said, the legends, hit up aerobiccapacity.com. We'll have all that in the show notes. We'll have 
Chris's Instagram also in the show notes, which is your name essentially. So it's it's great. It's great, which we'll also have in there as well, team. And uh, honestly, if you have any questions based on this, I will be sure to forward them on to Chris himself. It's been amazing today. But for the sounds of it, I've already got my training program down pat. I'll be requiring Chris to help me out even further this marathon. And if you guys, like we always do, we'll be getting training tips for the marathon. I'm sure I'll be referencing Chris a lot of the time as well. So Chris, my man, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for being part of the Intel podcast. Thank you, Dan.